Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we have Canadian author and speaker Fred Masters on the show. Fred has been a professional financial educator for decades here in Canada. He speaks at different universities to both students and alumni teaching financial wellness. And in this episode, he's going to share his findings on what he's found to be the main problem areas that are within our control that tend to prevent us Canadians from reaching financial independence much, much earlier. We also cover what type of investing he has found to be the most effective in helping us achieve early retirement as quickly as possible here in Canada. Fred is also the author of the book, Lessons on Mastering Money, where he identifies six key pillars that can really move the needle for us when it comes to our finances. So we cover those and much more in the interview. Enjoy. All right, Fred, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Cornell. Happy to join you and your listeners. Awesome. Fred, when it comes to Canadians reaching their financial independence number, what have you found in your research to be the main problem areas that prevent them from getting there as quickly as possible? I'd say two things, Cornell. I'd say debt, first of all. We're just addicted to debt. And of course, the Bank of Canada was sending out warning signs well before the pandemic hit. And of course, we're spending again and putting more and more onto our lines of credit and our credit cards. And of course, that was just fine when interest rates were where they were during the pandemic. But now that they've tripled, it's a little bit of a shock. And people have a lot less money now to commit to savings, unfortunately. Of course, this is the Bank of Canada's plan. You know, In order to slow the economy, you've got to slow spending. So We understand what's happening from that perspective. But I would say the other piece is a lack of urgency. And this is really important. You know, there's only three key variables that are involved in terms of accumulating wealth. And that's the money you invest, the rate of return, and the time. And of those three pieces, the time is the most important. So I think this idea that, well, I can get to savings later, I've got time for that. You know, really what we want to do is understand this earn, save, invest cycle and talk about that repeatedly in the book. I think it's really important. We need to be doing work we love. We need to do work we love so that we could take additional courses and put ourselves in position to earn more money doing that. We then need to absolutely commit to savings and you know, talk about the importance of doing this with your partner. We save in an automated way every two weeks, hide the money ourselves, and then invest for long-term goals. So really, the reality is that if I asked somebody in their 30s or 40s, you know, what long-term goals do you have financially, you can identify those. I want to, you know, save for retirement, and I want to retire on my terms at a number that's appropriate for me, whatever that age may be. I want to help the kids with their post-secondary costs, and probably now to get into housing too in some ways. Those would be the two things. Then I have to figure out the housing puzzle also. So if those priorities are important to you, I think you want to get after them. You know, if you would like to go on a trip to Europe in the summer of 2024, you want to get after that now and save those dollars. Because if it's important to you, you want to start saving for it now. So that's what I think the two biggest issues are addiction to debt. This goes across all demographics, right from coast to coast to coast. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is this sense that I have time. There's lots of time. And really... Because time's such a valuable asset, we want to put it on our side. You know, when I wrote my book for Canadians, their 20s and 30s, the idea is, wow, someone in their mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s has time, so you want to get after it. But you don't want to let those years slip away because once they're gone, they are gone. For sure. And when it comes to investing to achieve an early retirement here in Canada, 
what type of investing have you found to be the most effective? I think this is really important to understand as Canadians. You know, many of your listeners may be in a position where, you know, a financial advisor or maybe going into the bank has put them in a position where they've got expensive, actively managed mutual funds. You know, when we're talking expensive, we're talking, you know, management expense ratios at 2% plus. And the reality is that the vast majority, like we're talking over a decade, like 90% of Canadian equity mutual funds don't outperform the index. So when we think about that, the only logical conclusion is that if we're in expensive, actively managed equity mutual funds, we are overpaying for underperformance. And the reality is that those two factors are factors that we can control. You know, by embracing index investing, yes, you're going to get the return of the index, whatever that may be, but you're going to control your costs. And I think in this crazy environment we're in, I'll call it post-pandemic or near-pandemic, in this crazy environment we're in, if you can control something financially in your life, you feel a lot of comfort in doing that. And of course, controlling your fees is one of the things we can do. So I think it's incredibly important to embrace index investing to reach your long-term goals. Statistically, the odds are in your favor, but there's all kinds of benefits to embracing index investing. You know, I look at our big, huge pension funds. We're talking about the Ontario Teacher Pension Plan. We're talking about the Canada Pension Plan and they index. Yes, they are involved in some hybrid investment strategies and they do select stocks too, but they index to a great extent. And so we want to follow that lead. We want to embrace index investing. There's lots of different ways to do that. But the reality is long-term, it'll also avoid you making some crucial mistakes. I've put on 13 presentations for Canadian universities over the last three school years. And at the Q&A session, invariably, I get asked a question about cryptocurrency. You know, and one of the tenets of my book is get rich slow. You know, we don't want to be hitting home runs. We want to get rich methodically. We want to embrace that earn, save, invest cycle, save every two weeks, invest in index products, intact sheltered accounts, and let, you know, the wonderful benefits of, of time, you know, play out for us. But if you're trying to hit home runs with cryptocurrency stuff, or pot stocks or whatever the flavor of AI now, whatever the flavor of the day is, what you do is embrace way, way, way too much risk. So I'm a huge fan of index investing, you know, Canadian Money Savers featuring an article that I've just written and it's called Lessons on Index Investing. It's really important material that I learned when I was teaching my kids in class. One thing that really worries me, especially you mentioned people in their 20s, 30s, maybe this applies more to people in their 20s, is there is the whole active versus passive peace and not being in high fee mutual funds and long-term listeners of the show know that I have the same opinions as you in that regard. And a lot of them have migrated from these high fee mutual funds to passive index investing. The one piece though, that I think can be a very big temptation for people is when, especially someone maybe in their twenties and the first time is they go on YouTube, let's say they look up how to invest and they see these videos of what stocks am I picking for this month for my TFSA? What's going to be the, speculating on, on stocks, essentially, very much active investing in that regard. So they're not in high fee mutual funds, but they're essentially, they believe that they can go on Instagram or go on YouTube or, you know, name your, <laughs> name your marketing channel that these, some of these people use. And they feel that, okay, if I follow this person who seems to know what they're talking about, I'm going to be making all this money. So why would I go with Cornell and Fred's boring 
index investing portfolio. When people ask me, what can I expect? I'll say, okay, I use 8%. A lot of financial planners like to use 8% from, from the ones I've interviewed when it comes to the equity side of your portfolio. So Cornell, why would I go with your 8% boring index fund when this person here said that I, I'm going to get double my money or get 20%, that kind of a thing. I mean, you speak at so many schools and universities and you mentioned crypto. I'm sure you get questions like that about these other flavors of the month. How do you communicate this to young investors? And I guess older investors too, because everybody wants quick money, right? So because I don't know how to do it. And it worries me that there's so many people that want this sort of get rich quick thing. And then instead of setting themselves up for success by having a strong foundation, by just doing index and like you said, letting time take its course, let it grow consistently over time. Instead, it's just going for the quick buck and then it inevitably fails like 90 plus percent of the time. And then now they're starting over, right? And I think that can be a really catastrophic thing for a lot of Canadians that really sets them back. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I, I struggle and eventually I'll have to teach my kids this. So <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, uh, man, let's Question. unpack. <laughs> let's unpack some of those pieces. So, first thought. First thought is concentration is wonderful, right? We want to concentrate. We want to focus at work. We want to focus during our hobbies. Concentration when you invest is dangerous because what you do is take on way more risk. You know, if you're going to load up on three or four stocks and that's it for your TFSA retirement plan, what you've done is embraced huge risk. You've embraced company specific risk. And what we can do when we diversify through index investing is we can mitigate risk. And listen, we mitigate risk all the time. You know, I hop on my bike for a bike ride. I put on my helmet. That's mitigating risk. Bike riding is dangerous. Driving in the car is dangerous. Everything is dangerous. But we mitigate that by putting on our seat belts, our bike helmets. We do what we need to do in terms of staying safe. And diversification is the number one way to mitigate risk. One of the first things I'd focus on is this idea that the, one of the world's top investors, Warren Buffett, you know, and he's a stock picker. That's he spent his life doing that. He's top of the heap in terms of his long-term results. He has said that investor today should just be 90% index. He says S&P 500, but that's a little bit of an American bias. His feeling is that the S&P 500 reaches into all of the other nooks and crannies in terms of global investing. But what he's really saying is you should be index investing with 90% of your retirement plans and the other 10% should just be in a simple bond fund. You've got pros telling you that indexing is the way to go. We understand that uh, you know those big pension funds, they do index, but I would talk about one other piece and that is the impact of losing 50%. So you know, crypto is volatile. And yes, you can be up 50%, but you can be down 50%. So you have a $10,000, let's say, inheritance from a grandparent, and you stick that in your TFSA, and you get into crypto, and you take that 10000 and you lose half of it, and now you're at $5,000. Well, the math works like this. To get from 5000 back to ten, this is just to where you started, you have to get a 100% gain. And the reality is that that's incredibly difficult. And yes, you might do it once. You might even do it twice, but to do it repetitively... And to be watching the stock market repetitively, you know, maybe one thing when you're 20 and you're just starting your investing journey and you have time to do that. But fast forward to you at 35 and your future self is going to thank you that you didn't end up stock picking because you're not going to have time to watch the stock market. And you may not have the passion to do so either because you may be a veterinarian or a nurse teacher or a teacher a nurse practitioner. Life is busy. We want to put ourselves in a position to automate as much as we can. And if we can automate our savings, it avoids making those huge mistakes. Because I'm telling you, if you're 40 and you take a 50% hit on your portfolio, what 
you may be looking at is delaying your retirement. And that's an eye opener for anybody in terms of their financial future. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. All right, I want to give a big shout out to Passive for sponsoring this episode. They are free to use and are literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments. If you've been investing for any period of time, you know how important rebalancing your portfolio is as that's what allows you to consistently buy low and sell high with your investments as well as ensure that you aren't taking on any additional unnecessary risk. Now, as critical as rebalancing your portfolio is, it's actually a manual and annoying labor-intensive process as to do it correctly, you have to log into each of your household's investment accounts and do manual data entry on a spreadsheet to figure out how much to buy of each investment every single time that you have money to invest. And there's always the chance that you make a mistake and miscalculate something when doing it yourself on a spreadsheet. So these days, when I have money to invest, I simply log into Passive, I immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio, and Passive automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target across all of my household's accounts. Then in a couple clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. I'm also able to see how my entire household's investment portfolio is doing across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all my accounts. So they have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Quest Trade user like me, you also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point so I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments. They saved me many dozens of hours when I'm managing and optimizing my portfolio. So definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Again, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And now back to the show. We've touched on the whole stock picking piece and then the appeal of that. I find just talking to other Canadian investors, I found there's also this other angle of investors that say, okay, I'm not going to speculate in terms of, you know, finding the next hot stock that's going to double in a month or whatever. We use Tesla as an example, right? Somebody likes that company. They like Elon. They like what he's doing. They believe in the company or Amazon. Pick your company. These are companies where we're not really speculating per se. This isn't some like penny stock. This is just, okay, they believe in the company. They like the company. They want to have a piece of it. Again, that we get into that issue that when you do that, like you said, we now have diversification problems if you're putting too much eggs in that one basket. What do you say to those kinds of investors where they're not going for the get rich quick? They're happy of being a long-term Amazon investor. Every dollar you put into Tesla or Amazon is a dollar you're not putting into index investing. So how do you speak to those types of investors where maybe they already have a bit of an indexing portfolio, but they are really tempted to be more of a hybrid investor to still place some individual bets on some companies that they really believe in? Two things. The first thing I do is talk to your partner about it, if you have a partner, because there's accountability there, isn't there? So talk to your honey about money. We want to be saving together. We want to be on this journey together because there's going to be challenges and we want to support each other when we do that. I would call this a core and explore strategy. 
So basically what you're doing, let's say you and your partner decide we're going to take 80% of our portfolio, we're going to index it, but with 20%, we're going to do some stock picking. And we may follow a momentum strategy where, you know, all of a sudden I'm interested in NVIDIA or interested in Microsoft or interested in Google or Tesla with a portion of our portfolio. Perhaps we're going to populate that with five or 10 or 15 or 20 different stocks. And we're going to try to beat the index. Ah, this is our goal. Because if we're not trying to beat the index, it's just a hobby. And because this, there's so much at stake here, like your retirement's at stake. So this really isn't a hobby anymore, right? These are important decisions. And so if you want to go down that path, what I would say is do it with your partners as accountability and then check in. So that means checking in quarterly is perhaps at a minimum. Check in every quarter, check in annually. How are we doing vis-a-vis -vis our index portfolio? And if you're getting some results that are positive, then continue doing that. However, if you're experiencing some heavy duty suffering and your results are much less than the index, it leads you to some questions. And those questions again come back to, can we beat the index? Is this something that we're able to do? Professional money managers, like we said, SPIVA, S&P index versus active research clearly indicates 90% of long-term mutual funds don't beat the index on the equity side. So on the Canadian side, the reality is, yes, go ahead. And if you really wanna do that, follow that core and explore, but hold yourself accountable. And if you're not getting the results, go back to embracing the index investing. I like how you put it as well in terms of, it's like, if you want to play that game, fine. If you want to do this core and explore, but realize that if you do it wrong, you are delaying your retirement or at least your financial independence number when you can actually retire if you choose to do so. It is dangerous to view it too much like a game because this isn't small money we're talking about most likely. And so if that you played placed a few bad bets and now you have to work an extra five years because those bets did not beat the index, let's say, then are you willing to take on that risk? And I guess that becomes a personal decision to kind of acknowledging that this is the stakes are high here. <laughs> and, and if you're only willing to put in like a hundred dollars, okay, is this also a good use of your time now? <laughs> because it's not really going to move the needle anyway, right? So you kind of have to decide. What are your thoughts when it comes to index investing? Obviously, there's different options here in Canada. We've got the asset allocation ETFs now, which have become very popular, which I'm a fan of as well as listeners of the show know. There's also the buying individual ETFs, which I do as well. And then of course, there's the more kind of fuller service option, like going with a robo-advisor or something like that. What advice do you give to investors when it comes to choosing from what I would call those sort of three primary options here in Canada? I say it comes down to your level of comfort. If, if you're just beginning your investing journey and you have a small portfolio, I think that robos are an excellent option. And the reason I think robos are an excellent option is you're going to get some handholding. There's all kinds of information on any of the robo sites in terms of the thinking and the methodology and basically the background in terms of how the philosophy works. You're going to pay a little extra for that for sure. There's no doubt. But the reality is you can invest in small amounts on a regular basis. I mean, it's got a whole bunch of boxes that checks off. If you're more sophisticated and you're more comfortable, that may mean selecting. So this is now the other end of the continuum. That may mean selecting a handful of ETFs with razor thin MERs, almost down to zero and constructing for yourself a portfolio. Somewhere in the middle are those asset allocation ETFs. And I think for many people, asset allocation ETFs are so simple, they're mind blowing. This can't be it. Can't be this easy. And I, I stress this in the book. So I've got a section on a book on investing, and then I've got a section on the book on investing using our tax sheltered accounts. Boy, if you can combine asset allocation ETFs inside tax sheltered accounts 
to save for long-term goals, such as your retirement, using RESPs to save for the kids' post-secondary costs, your future self is going to be dancing up a storm decades down the road because you're going to be able to achieve those long-term goals. And you're going to be able to do it in a way that doesn't suck a lot of time away from your life. Because as I said, decade after decade of watching stocks takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. If you're not passionate about it, it becomes tedious. I, I think there's a continuum. If you're more sophisticated, I think you can easily build your own family of ETFs. If you're just beginning and need some hand-holding or have a very small portfolio, want to invest on a regular basis, I love the robos. Somewhere in the middle, asset allocation. That should be for the most folks, their default selection. It's a great option. Any of the brokers are for them, of course. And you can also be in a position to purchase them without a commission buying in. Just a big fan of them, especially in combination with our TFSA, RRSP, RESP. Awesome. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, just for anybody that is maybe new to the show, just so you know from... All the experts that I interview, this is pretty much seems to be cons consistently the answer given uh, by those that I respect in the field that I know what they're talking about and have researched this. Uh, definitely, if you are new to all of this as a beginner level, we have investors of all types here on the show, but if someone is much on the beginner side and are just starting to dip their feet into this whole investing space, know that what Fred just said is really an excellent starting point. And it can help reduce a lot of the intimidation that's not as complicated as it sounds when you take that route. If you're trying to take this route of an active investor, people spend their entire careers trying to be good active investors. That, that's where it can get really, really complicated and very, very difficult. But it doesn't have to be that way if you go with the options that Fred was talking about, doing something like the asset allocation ETFs, indexing through those or buying individual ones, or like you said, with the robo-advisors. Uh, the robo-advisors seem to be very good at eliminating the whole intimidation piece that some people feel when they start investing. Some don't have that, but I, I've talked to other investors who clearly do and maybe even find it overwhelming because there are thousands of ETFs out there, for example. And so I could see how that is one way to get your foot in the door because even paying those higher fees is better than doing nothing. And then eventually, once you get comfortable, you can start transitioning to the more cost-effective options like an asset allocation ETF. The article that I just wrote for Canadian Money Saver is an interesting analogy of something I've done for decades as a teacher. Pair them up so they were in teams, and I'd give them access to two virtual stock market accounts populated with half a million dollars each. One of them was actively managed, and one of them was just a couch potato, just absolutely indexed. And I would have them you know, spend some time and set up the index fund, and then I would have them actively manage one trade like crazy. And they did that for about six weeks. So six weeks of nonstop trading. And then at the end of that process, I would ask them to reflect on which they could do. And student after student after student would say, I found picking stocks stressful. <laughs> I, I, I watched it all day. I watched it during day. I was in other yeah. classes watching it. I got it. And the reality is that many of them would conclude, I wouldn't want to do that. I, I would be much better just indexing. And, and the other thing that I would add is, you know, we talked about this core and explore ideas. I'll give folks just a, a little bit of an insight that my students learned as we were doing this, because I would have them pick some sector ETF funds. So let's say pick a tech fund down in the States or maybe a, an energy one on the Canadian side. And this is a good, good middle ground for those who want to do some core and explore, because what you're doing is you're scooping some of the benefits of diversification. You're eliminating company specific risk. So if you pick an energy ETF, you're not all loaded up on one particular company, did it with a tech ETF down in the States. And that's a nice middle ground. You know, so if you've got a partner who really is ambitious and wants to pick stocks, see if you can come down one level and say, listen, you're passionate about what sector? I'm passionate about healthcare. I'm passionate about tech or energy. Let's pick a sector ETF 
to eliminate some company-specific risk. That would be a good middle ground, especially if you're in a relationship and you've got a partner who wants to pick some stocks. You know what? Avoid those stocks, but go ahead and go with the sector ones if you're going to do that core and explore. What do you do in your own portfolio, Fred? I mean, obviously, you do index investing, but are you just a purist index investor where you just have core ETFs and that's it? Or do you do more of a core and explore like you've mentioned, or maybe something else entirely? Or do you also do some betting on specific sectors like you just said? What do you actually do with your own investments? Yeah. So first of all, I guess like many who are in a position where they're retired from a public field, I've got a pension. And so I view my monthly income from my pension as fixed income. If you think about it, right? I mean, look, it's cash flow. It's predictable. I I can basically say that's the equivalent of this much invested in a bond that kicks off a return or a GIC or whatever it is. So when I view that, that means I'm in a position to take on more risk with my other investments than perhaps someone of my similar age would be. So I'm 58. So let's call me 60 just to make the math easy. So if you look at that idea of 100% minus age should be your equity weighting, I should be somewhere in the 40 to 60% range, especially if you want to take 120, 120% minus age, given that rates of return tend to be a bit lower on bonds going forward here. If you think about it, someone like me should probably be maybe like 50, 50, somewhere in there. But the reality is that I've got the benefit of that pension plan. So the reality is I'm going to buy a new car in a little bit. So I'm saving for that or a good quality used car, I should say, as opposed to a new car. Index investing is the way to go. I will pick stocks here and there, but my strategy is very focused on income. So I'm more of a dividend income investor. So if I've got a spot where, you know, I see good, solid, dependable companies that are for some reason kind of kicked to the curb a little bit, and all of a sudden their yields slip up to five, 6%, I might do some purchasing of those. But I'm not looking to flip that at all. I'm looking literally to hold for the 6% dividend and get some capital appreciation. So I would say that I do embrace index investing. I've got the pension, which makes me a little bit unique. Fred, in all your years of teaching and speaking about personal finance throughout your career, I'm sure you've noticed certain patterns between those that struggle with money and those that have really mastered this area of life. What are some of the best practices that you've noticed from those that have made it, so to speak, in terms of becoming financially independent and being able to retire early if they choose to do so? Yeah, sometimes it's the just comes down to having those key conversations with your partner, right? I talk about in my book the three areas, the three massive financial challenges you're going to have. I think this is a test you've got to get 100% on, unfortunately. And I alluded to them earlier. You've got to figure out retirement. If you don't have a company pension plan, it's you. It's the person in the mirror. So you've got to figure out retirement. Second one is touched on it. Saving for the kids, helping the kids, whether putting the down payment cash on the table now for their housing or whether it's saving for their post-secondary schools. I think that's the key piece. I can't tell you the number of teachers that I've saw during my career who hit 50. And once you're at 50, you're going to retire in three, four, five, six years. And you'd say, hey, 50, congratulations, you know, is retirement on the horizon? They're like, oh, no, I'm not going to retire. I've got to save for the kids' post-secondary costs. And that would always make me scratch my head because the kids were born 15 years ago. You saw this coming. So we've got to start doing that. And I would encourage folks to start doing that as soon as those kids arrive. And the third one is the housing puzzle. And it's a complicated one right now. So I would say those couples that journey together, talk about the importance of saving, talk about the importance of investing. But I would also say they've got the same money mindset. So this is the opening chapter of my book. We always hear that opposites attract, and that may be true in relationships. 
But if you're in a relationship and you've got an opposite money mindset with your partner, I think you're in for a long, hard road. I think you've got to be on the same page, understand why we're saving, what we're trying to achieve, check in on a regular basis and get after it. That to me is the most important thing. Couples that I hear, I work with, who go to my presentations, give me feedback after and say, we're doing things that you're talking about. We're already saving for the kid's education and our kids are only three and four. We're already saving for our retirement. We're already into our first home and we've got reasonable expectations about moving into a larger home. There is no forever home. This is a finite game. It's your current housing and that could be renting. It's your current housing situation and your future one. There is no forever home. Folks who have a reasonable expectation upon the home they're in or their next home, those folks have the best position to be in control financially. The reality here is we want to be in a position to thrive financially, not just survive financially. You've got to be in a position to understand what's going on financially in your life and be at the table. Those are the key pieces that I see with couples that are successful. I was laughing a bit when you said the whole forever home comment, because I might have mentioned this to you when we were on the Market Insights together. Every time that my wife and I moved to a new home, we were, this is our forever home. Okay, now this is, <laughs> it's never the forever home because things happen, right? You have a, a child or work situation changes or job opportunity. There's always something, at least that's been experienced. And I worry a little bit too for people because I think if you have that mindset that this is now our forever home, I find it makes it that much easier to overspend on the home because you can kind of justify it emotionally. Oh, I'm going to be living here forever. What's an extra $10,000? And then it's very easy to, to do that. Just like with the whole wedding excuse, I'm only going to get married once. Why not blow all this extra? <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'm pretty sure there's some fallacy there <laughs> to, with that way of thinking. So very interesting. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. There are so many opinions on how to invest your money today, but it can be hard to find credible voices to rely on in the world of finance and investing. One resource that I turn to every week is the ETF Market Insights YouTube channel led by today's episode sponsor, BMO ETFs. Market Insights brings in industry experts and the weekly episodes cover the hottest themes like inflation, infrastructure, healthcare, and more. Tuning in helps me stay up to date on what's happening so I can be a smarter investor. And you can also submit your own ETF questions to be answered on the show. So do yourself a favor and subscribe on YouTube to ETF Market Insights or visit ETFMarketInsights.com so you can be notified when future episodes go live. And now back to the show. When you said your very first point about how you have to figure out retirement, how would you define that? Would that be figuring out how much you actually need to save, let's say every month with your partner so that you can actually hit that financial independence number at the date that you want? Or maybe if you can go into more detail on that, how does one in Canada figure out retirement? Well, first of all, it's a cash flow conversation, isn't it? So let's talk about your house. So many people are in a position where they don't have a pension plan, a company pension plan. They got CPP and OAS that'll come in they look at their house and they think, well, I, I don't have a, I haven't saved enough for retirement. M many Canadians don't save anything. I haven't saved enough. Haven't saved much at all. However, we've got the house. Okay. Let's talk about the house for a second, because for many people, the reality is the house is the retirement plan. It's the house. We're banking on things, aren't we? We're banking on real estate continuing to go up. And certainly that's the track record for, for real estate in Canada. And there's lots of reasons to support that continuing. I think we're going to look at an immigration boom coming here and there'll be lots of people who want homes and lots of people will benefit from that over the long term. The reality is your home's not a cash flow machine. It's not. 
And so to really get the money out of that, there are a couple of ways you can do it, of course, doing reverse equity things. But the reality is that you have to downsize. And that may be okay, but you may not want to downsize as you retire. As soon as you retire, it may not be the first thing you want. The other caveat I would say is that it's really about the journey and not a destination. I mean, Cornell, we're both retired, you know, and yet we are active in doing what we're passionate about. You know, we, we're, and I would say for many Canadians, retirement's not going to be a line that they just reach and they never work again. And my wife is volunteers a great deal. She's vice chair of a local school board. She's retired also, but she's doing what fills her bucket. And so for many people, I would encourage you way before your retirement date, this is really important. I'm talking five to 10 years prior to retirement, start to get your mind around what retirement will look like for you. For many, of course, it will mean doing some part-time work. And that's absolutely fine because to go cold turkey from work, you lose all those relationships in a sense. I think retirement, it's a dollar conversation, but in lots of ways, it's a mental approach. It's a money mindset because you do have inflows coming from CPP, OAS. You have inflows coming from obviously a pension or your own savings. And you have to do the math and figure out all of that. The reality is probably if you've played it right, and this is absolutely crucial, if you've played it right and you've saved for your kid's education and at least put them in a position to launch, right, so that they can leave. We love our kids, but we don't want them boomeranging back. If they're in a position where they can launch financially, then you should be in a position where your costs drop significantly upon retirement. Because the reality is there aren't many mouth defeats. We love our kids, but they're very expensive. The reality is that likely we're in a position where our actual costs will drop down and we may need significantly less income. This is the reality. People look and say, I'll just make it, I'll just pull a number. I'm making 100000 upon retirement. I really need to continue making that into retirement. You really don't. The reality is your costs are going to drop significantly. You're going to be in a position where you may want to travel some more and do some things that maybe you put in the back burner. You're going to find that your costs are down hopefully in a position where your your debts are down, your interest payments are down, and you can allocate some more money to having some fun. Start thinking about that as a couple, five to 10 years prior to retirement. It's interesting. You are once again, another guest that I've had on the show who has achieved financial independence, you're retired. I'm using that in quotation marks because people define that word differently. And you, just like literally every single person that I've interviewed on the show over the past eight plus years who has achieved financial independence, they still now choose to do some sort of productive work that someone could perceive as, oh, you're not really retired, you are working, but it's no longer that, oh, you're doing it because you need the money. It's more because it fits other things, whether it's a charity thing, whether it's a mental stimulation, creative outlet, it's just, it's enjoyable being actually good at something, having some sort of purpose. There's all these other components. It's great to hear you say that because I'm like, oh, there's another one where they're retired, but they're not really, people are like, oh, well, you're not really retired. And again, it's, I really, really wish, I so wish that somebody told me when I was first starting off that the goal is not to hit that financial independence number as quickly as humanly possible at all costs. That should not actually be the goal because that's kind of the path that I took. And then now I'm like, look, I'm doing a podcast. I'm working anyway, right? So that doesn't sound like an efficient way to go. So I wish someone actually told me the goal should instead be to have a career or job or passions where you don't want to retire from them because you enjoy them. It's fun. And oh, hey, it also pays your groceries. Awesome. It's not a job that you are trying to get away from. You're not working for that pot at the end of the rainbow. You're actually enjoying the ride as opposed to just so focused on the destination. I, like I said, I took that route and 
looking back, it was so inefficient. If I knew that I was going to be quote unquote working by doing a podcast anyway, I would have done things way differently. I would have been like, well, why didn't I should have started this way earlier or done things that are more enjoyable way earlier instead of all the sacrifice and grinding in a job you don't like because, oh, you've got to hit that retirement number because then you never have to work anymore. In your case, like in everyone else's case that I've talked to, you end up working anyway. It's just you get to do something you actually enjoy, but you don't have to wait till you're 60 or 65 to do that. You can do that whether you're in your 20s or 30s, I would argue as well. I'll get off my soapbox, but I just, man, I just wish someone told me that because that would have been a much more enjoyable ride than just grinding away and just going at it. And then at the end of the day, working anyway, (laughs) because, you know, for the emotional fulfillment and all the other really solid benefits that doing some sort of productive work gives you. I don't know if you have anything to comment on that, but I just really want to share that with people. You're right on the money. Like I said, this is, this is a finite game. And I think people really need to understand that. And it is a journey. There is no destination. That's why I like the analogy of there is no forever home. You don't have a forever home. You have a now home and you have maybe a future home. But the reality, I can tell you, if my wife was listening to this, she would be whispering in my ear and saying, health yes. is your number one wealth. You talk to retirees who have financially all the wealth they could possibly spend and they don't have their health, they would say, I trade it all for my health. So we want to keep our health as a number one priority all the way through. We want to stay as active and as fit as we can. And to do to drop everything and just have the goal to be, gee, I want to be financially independent, I think is dangerous because really... That may mean that if you have young kids that you're sacrificing and you're not traveling with them so that you can save more. And I can tell you, I'm an empty nester now. My older guy's a pro hockey player in Australia and my younger guy's a teacher in Ottawa. And I'm glad we traveled with them. We took them to two Olympic games when they were kids and traveled. My wife's a big Disney fan and we did all those things. But while we did it, we saved for them. They were priorities for us. I always say, Two used cars in my driveway, been to four Olympic games. There's the trade-off. That's the trade-off. I don't drive a BMW, but I'm in a position where my two used Toyotas have put me in a position to do some traveling, which is important to me and my family. If it's important to you, get after it. There's just another example. If travel is important to you, get after it. But you can save for it. You can see it. That's awesome. And moving on to the next question here, Fred, whether somebody is in the process of building up their investment portfolio or looking to start living off their portfolio... I found that, and you touched on this already a bit, I found that managing your month-to-month cash flows is really a critical skill that you have to keep practicing no matter what level of wealth you are at because you can always overspend no matter how much money you have. Do you have a process that you use or that you recommend to others to ensure that we have enough money month-to-month to continuously contribute to our portfolios if we're in that asset accumulation phase. And for those that have already hit financial independence, how do you suggest that they manage their cash flow so that they don't run out of money in retirement? Two things come to mind. First is budgeting. I don't think we budget well. And there's certainly some stats that come up that say the Canadians don't budget at all. So if you don't budget, if you don't have a sense of your cash flow, here's what I would encourage you to do. Save until it hurts. And what I mean by that is take a big chunk of money. So whatever a big chunk of money might be for you, we'll just use $500. Take $500 every paycheck and hide it on yourself. Pay yourself first. This is back to David Chilton, the wealthy barber days. And jam $200 into your TFSA, $200 into your RSP, and $100 into your RESP. Save it. Save it in a tax-sheltered way to reach your long-term goals. And the reality is that if you still have some extra cash left, save more of it. 
And you may not put all of it in those tax sheltered account. Perhaps you want to put it in a, a non brick and mortar account like Tangerine or simply something that's virtual, something that's hidden from yourself, making it a little bit difficult to get access to the money. And that can be money that you use to save for Christmas gifts, to save for next year's summer vacation. But the reality is that you've got to save and you've got to save until it hurts. To achieve these long-term goals, you need to do that. And we'll also make sure you live within your means. Now, on the other side of the equation, when we've reached our financial independence, it's very difficult if you've been a saver all your life to start being a spender. It is really difficult. But what you need to do, again, is spend some time thinking about how can I basically start to spend the cash that I've accumulated? Because it's no good passing on all of your dollars as an inheritance to your kids. That is not a great scenario. There's lots of research that indicates that does lots of damage. And so there are things you can do with your surplus. This is what this is. If you realize, and you can hire a financial planner to do the number crunch for you, because you may be in a position where like, hmm, I think I've got more money than I need. And a financial planner might tell you, you know, you've got two or $300,000 more than you probably need. And then you're in a position to say, you know what? I can travel more. I should travel more. I should travel better. Maybe that means traveling to destinations that are further you know, afoot than where you would normally travel. Maybe that means traveling and staying in hotels that are nicer or going longer. Maybe it means giving to the kids, the adult kids with a warm hand now as opposed to waiting. And maybe it means supporting charities that are important to you. And you can do that knowing that you've got a surplus. So really, you're at a position where you're kind of in a position you don't have to save anymore. You've got a surplus. Do you have a handle on what that surplus is? And do you have a plan for it? I'm telling you right now, if the plan's going to be, well, I'll, when I pass away, it'll all go to my kids. That is not going to be. First of all, you're not going to see the benefit of it, but I can tell you the kids may need the money right now as opposed to later. So, and so many young adults, if the, your young adult kids knew that you'd be able to give them 50,000 and you can do it now, as opposed to waiting for 15 years when they don't need it, man, that 50,000 now could mean the difference of getting into a condo now, as opposed to waiting for three more years. Give with a warm hand, lots of benefits to doing that for you and the recipient. I definitely heard of stories of people that kind of regretted doing that whole, oh, I'll just wait till I pass away. Then they get the inheritance. So let's say they pass away and the child is now, I don't know, let's say 50. And maybe the kids are out of the house by that point. So they're at the peak of their careers. They're earning more than they ever have before. The kids might be out of the house by then as well. So they have they don't need more money anymore. And oh, that's when they get the inheritance, right? And so I've, I've heard these stories of these sort of these situations where they think that's great that I have this inheritance. Wonderful. But I really wish I had it when I was massively in student debt, you know, like someone, maybe they're a doctor now, they're making lots of money, their debts paid off. Now they get the inheritance. Well, what if they got it when they were trying to get out of debt after medical school? Or you said, get into the housing market, things of that nature. Or they, so they can move to a better neighborhood for their kids, things of that sort. And that's where they would have a lot more value from. It's a very interesting way. And I think it's such an almost counterintuitive way for because naturally we just think of the kids will get whatever's left. But what if they got that early? I think that's a really interesting thought exercise. Well, and I, I've presented to senior women's groups on this concept. And the reality is that women are going to control billions and yeah. billions of dollars in this economy because women outlive the men. And often women are a little bit younger if they enter into relationships. So, you know, two things, women have longer longevity and they typically are the younger of the partner. So you do the math and women control the cash. And often what happens is for whatever reason, lots of different, we delegate, right? We delegate everything. And so often what happens is one member of the partnership will control the money and the other will take care of other stuff. And that's absolutely okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I would encourage our women, our female listeners to get to the table, be at the table, understand what's going on. Even if your partner or a financial advisor is managing the money, 
get to the table so you know what's going on, you're not overwhelmed, and you also can have your voice heard. And you can say, hey, I think we've got a surplus here. The reality is if longevity in Canada says we live to mid 80s and, you know, dem demographics say we have our kids in our early 30s, that means that you're likely going to have kids in their 50s when mid 50s when you pass and your inheritance flows. And at that point, just to your point, Cornell, boy, those kids could use that money 15 years earlier. Ladies, get to the table financially <laughs> and talk to your honey about money. Awesome. Hey, Fred, you mentioned how you write for Canadian Money Saver. I've written for them in the past as well. Lana Senichar, who you know since you write for them. So she, I know, just to give a bit of a shout out, she's done some excellent work on bringing different women in here in Canada specifically to help financial literacy, again, for women specifically. She's done some really, really great work on that front. So you, you had the call to action there about women taking charge in that regard. If you are a female and you are looking for a good resource, I, I did want to give a shout out to Lana Sanichar over at Canadian Money Saver. She has done some really great work in helping improve financial literacy for women specifically. So that's great. And then while they're there, they can read your articles too. <laughs> it's all timely. <laughs> awesome. So Fred, there's six different personal finance pillars that you focus on in your book. Are there any that we haven't touched on yet that you think can really move the needle when it comes to maximizing net worth here in Canada? I'm going to talk about two. Ooh, car keys. There's the first one. <laughs> So look, at, there's so much fear of missing out. There's so much keeping up with our neighbors in terms of cars. And the reality is I'm in a middle-class neighborhood in Waterloo region. The number of Beamers and Mercedes and Land Rovers is staggering. Yeah. And the reality is that no one's buying these cars. They're all leasing them. And those lease payments, especially with interest rates creeping up to where they are now, those lease payments you know, if you look at a driveway with a couple of leased cars, those lease payments can easily top $1,000, $1,200 for two of those cars. And what those are, are absolutely savings obliterators. So I'm going to encourage people to really embrace this idea of buying a quality used vehicle that's coming off lease. In other words, you want to buy someone else's car that they've babied for four years while they were leasing it. And that's going to allow you to spend less money on cars and allow you to transition more cash to your savings goals. So that's the first thing. I would say the second thing is real estate. Because let's face it, real estate is the elephant in the room right now. So I'm going to encourage folks to view, and we talked about it briefly, view your real estate journey as just that, a journey. There's absolutely nothing wrong with living at home for a couple of years after you're done your school, saving like a fiend, giving mom and dad a kiss and say, please, mom and dad, don't charge me room and board. Let me live here. I'm saving for my first down payment. There's nothing wrong with renting as a long-term goal. Caveat here, if you are a long-term renter, remember you're not going to have the advantage of having the equity that builds up in your home. So you're going to have to save ferociously on the way through if you're a long-term renter. You know, your journey may involve buying a small condo, perhaps then a townhouse, a semi, a larger detached, and then maybe your detached home that you're going to spend decades in, and then you will downsize and away you go. As I mentioned, there is no forever in terms of housing. But you need to view your journey as a journey, and wherever you are on that journey is okay. Please don't feel that you haven't arrived. This is ridiculous. I haven't arrived until I own a detached home. Forget it. That, that is not reality. Lots of people end up being home rich and, and poor in every other sense because they can't do any savings. So there's, you don't want to regret your home decision. Purchase your home. I understand it's an emotional thing, but recognize that it is really 
a journey. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the, the five C's of credit and the key variables that lenders examine. You want to keep your credit score high at every corner of your life. Your credit score does matter. You want to keep it as high as you possibly can to put yourself in a good position to, great, to get a great mortgage when the time comes. And just to finish things off here, Fred, it's been a very interesting road when it comes to holding bonds in our portfolio. So the traditional device has been to hold a bond ETF as part of our portfolio to help with that volatility that comes from the stocks. Yet for us Canadian investors, we experienced double digit bond declines not too long ago during these interest rate hikes. And I think a lot of people were not really expecting that from the safe portion of the portfolio. Now on the flip side, when the interest rates were low, we saw some high interest savings accounts at banks in Canada offer comparable rates to what bonds were giving without that added volatility risk. So for those Canadians who don't want to be 100% equity investors, they want to have something in bonds or some sort of fixed income, something safer, what are your views on where they should park their money for that safer, less volatile portion of their portfolio? Well, we're in interesting times, aren't we, right now? You know, Bank of Canada, here we are in a raising cycle again after pausing for a little bit. <laughs> the reality is that anybody who's under 30 doesn't even realize they can make money in a savings account. Like, it's like, what, what's this all about? When I was a kid working at Canada Trust, we had Government of Canada, Canada savings bonds earning double digit like and mortgages at 13%. So I'm not saying that those days are coming back. But my point is right now that interest rates are higher than they have been over the last three decades. And there's all kinds of demographic reasons for that. But here we are, interest rates are higher. This creates an opportunity. And this creates an opportunity to get some locked in guaranteed returns, GICs with no downside risk and to say, put them into our tax sheltered accounts so that we don't have to get those income dollars ravaged by tax. And to basically, if we want to avoid bonds, what I'm gonna suggest is this. Let's say you do your math and you say you wanna be on an 80-20, 80% equity, 20% fixed income. There's absolutely nothing wrong at this point in time with having that 20% fixed income in GICs that are paying you four and five plus percent. Absolutely nothing wrong. Mm. The reality is that this is an interesting moment in time. It really hasn't been here for the last three decades. We can get some returns on our fixed income via GIC that are not only acceptable, they're actually quite strong. And we have to trust the Bank of Canada that they are going to get inflation down to 2%. Boy, your future self is going to be awfully happy with you if you've got a GIC ladder that's paying out 5% a couple of years from now and inflation's back down to 2 and change. Again, 80-20 or 60-40. View that fixed income portfolio as being made up of bonds and also cash. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, especially when cash is paying you 5 And you mentioned a GIC ladder. That was kind of my follow-up question there was, would you just buy some long-term bonds since let's assume this is for a person that's still in that accumulation phase. They don't actually need the money from the portfolio yet. But in that case, would you still recommend a ladder, a GIC ladder, just to kind of help in case the interest rates do fluctuate or would you recommend something different? Huge fan of deposit brokers. I'm a mortgage broker. My role is to help others. One of my roles, one of my hats I wear is to help others line up their mortgage financing. But there's also deposit brokers and you can approach a deposit broker. There aren't very many of them, but they are very busy right now. I can tell you because lots of folks are doing this. You can approach a deposit broker and say, I'd like to open up a TFSA, put these dollars in and invest them, create for me a ladder and they will do just 
that. And the beautiful thing is you don't pay them for those services that wherever they actually place the dollars, they're compensated by the financial institutions and deposit brokers will have access to much better rates than you will, especially if you wander down to your corner bank and they're effortless. Basically, they'll do it for you. So embrace deposit brokers in terms of creating one of those GIC ladders for yourself, especially if there's some larger dollars involved. They'll be happy to take that on. They'll give you great service and they'll keep on top, especially when the individual GICs mature. They'll notify you they're maturing. We want to roll over. It's really easy, unfortunately, to miss that something's matured, have the dollars sitting in your account for three months and not get any interest on it at all. So embrace using a deposit broker. Great option for, and for you. When you say GIC ladder, are you talking about the sort of traditional one where it's like, okay, we have one GIC that's five years, one that's four, one that's three, one that's two, one that's one, and then you keep rotating them that way. Is that what you're referring to? Or are you referring to be some other GIC ladder strategy that I haven't heard of? <laughs> no, like I said, we sometimes look for these fancy financial tools. A simple five-year GIC ladder where you've got money rolling over and you're able to take the dollars. And if you need to, pull them out of your TFSA, or if you're able to continue to reinvest, that's ideal for you. I helped both of my mom and my mother-in-law do this with some cash when they downsized. And if you set it up properly, money can come due every six months to pay for Christmas gifts, vacations, and especially for those trying to decumulate, great strategy to have. So what you want to do is access liquidity, but then have some rate of return generating for you too. I'm really glad you brought that up. And, and thank you for not just going with the default. You should always have bonds in your retirement accounts no matter what because again i worry when i go online and i used to look up these blog posts online specifically here in canada the most common thing you'll see and sort of this default you do the questionnaire it's going to tell you how much you put in the stocks how much into bonds and then use a good bond etf i'm not knocking bond etfs it's just again it's, it depends there's pros and cons to each approach you need a bond etf no matter what it's kind of the narrative that i see most often and some of these blog posts have been written 10 years and things have been changing throughout. And so it's nice. I've interviewed lots of other experts on this show, and I've seen that now as this new common suggestion from people that actually know what they're talking about, like yourself, where, okay, yes, the bond ETF is still an option. There are pros and cons to that, but don't think that this is the one and only option out there. And therefore you should ignore GICs. You should ignore high interest savings accounts because that's the only game in town. It's not like you just said. And especially I help my family with these investments and some are older now they're in retirement. And again, this whole bond thing has put quite a wrench in their plans because their whole lives, they've been told their whole investment lives. They've been told that bonds are safe. They're not volatile. And then they see their bonds drop double digits with the interest rate hikes. And now they come to me and they say, Cornell, what happened? I've been doing what everyone says I should be doing. And I had this big bond portion and it's supposed to be safe and it dropped 10%. What's going on? And now they're getting stressed. They're getting anxiety over it. What I've kind of been gearing towards, and it sounds like you as well and others is the bond thing is still there. There's the GIC option. If you need the money in less than a year, maybe you just find a really good high interest savings account for that one year cash flow, And then you have the rest in the GIC ladder. So there are these other options worth exploring. It's great to hear you say the same thing as somebody that is in the space and that has obviously thought a lot about this. And again, from all the listeners, if someone's new to the show, this does seem to be a common thread now amongst experts in Canada when it comes to that fixed income, that safer portion of your portfolio. So thank you, Fred, for sharing that with us. And then, yeah, just to finish things off here, can you tell us more about your book and where can we see more of your work and insights as well? There it is. 
If anyone's watching on video, it's right there. <laughs> I wrote a book during the middle of the pandemic, Lessons on Mastering Money. It really captures what I have been, I guess I'll go backwards. I was a finance teacher, a high school finance teacher in Waterloo Region for decades. Saw my kids are really struggling financially. Start a little finance club, a little lunch and learn. And it really took off and staff started to attend. And so when staff started to attend, I, I realized that I could take it with me into retirement. So I launched my consulting business. I presented now to every possible demographic. As I mentioned, I presented to 13 universities over the last three school years. And in the midst of the pandemic, I realized I had enough to write a book. So I wrote Lessons on Mastering Money, the Personal Finance Guide for Canadians in their 20s and 30s. It's available across the country via Indigo. I can even go into some Indigo stores and see it on the shelf, which is always pretty exciting. But it was recognized as one of the top 10 personal finance books on the planet by an organization out of Singapore called the Money Awareness and Inclusion Awards. It's opened up the door to me, allowed me to do some writing for Canadian Money Saver, which has been really exciting. And really, the goal of my book is to put you in a position to have a better understanding of financial literacy. So you're in a position to thrive financially as opposed to just survive. I don't sell anything. I don't sell any products. I really try to explain to folks what's going on financially with their lives so they can take better control. There's sections on there about debt, real estate, buying cars, of course, investing, investing inside of tax-free savings accounts. A really practical guide. I would encourage folks to consider adding it to the repertoire as gifts for young adults. So if you've got a 20, 30-year-old who's just getting married, just starting to move out into their own home, it's a great resource to put in their hand. Because the reality is, this is the top source of stress for Canadians, but no Canadian's been taught any mandatory personal finance in this country. If you've learned some, it's been haphazard in an elective course. We just don't teach it for a whole bunch of reasons, and we should be. So I'm happy to be really in this wellness space. This is really a financial wellness initiative, and I'm honored to have the chance to talk to folks like you, Cornell, and your listeners and have a chance to share some thoughts about how to better control your financial journey. Wonderful. Yeah, well, well thanks so much for coming on and sharing your expertise with us. And it's, and for your contribution as well in, in writing this book, you're retired. You don't have to do this. This isn't like some cash grab because <laughs> you want a new Porsche or something. This is obviously a passion for you. You've been an educator, I guess, most, if not all your life, right? This, again, I really appreciate your contribution to helping Canadians and helping financial literacy and literacy in that regard. And I think you wrote it kind of for people in our twenties and thirties, but people that are 40, 50, a lot of them never had financial literacy education growing up as well. So I imagine the book would be relevant for them too. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. So I've floated the book to lots of folks who, who've connected with financial literacy in lots of different ways and lots of different times over the course of their careers. And folks in their 40s and 50s have said, where was this book when I was a kid? And then there's, I learned so much just moving through it. Really what it does is gives you the background so you can get at the table. So again, if you're in a relationship and your partner's managing all the money and they're competent, it's a great book for you to read because what it allows you to do is get up to speed. Look, here's the reality. Being successful financially is simple and yet difficult. It's simple because the tenants are easy. I've explained many of them today. It's difficult because you got to do it for the long term and you got to go together and there's going to be some of the realities you really understand the importance of those long-term goals. If they're important to you, get after them. My opening comments, it's one of the things that successful folks do is they get started. Awesome. Fred, well, thank you so much for coming on. Again, if you go to buildwealthcanada.ca, you'll see the episode there and I'll have all the links for Fred's book as well. And if you're watching this in video form on YouTube or something, I'll have it in the description as well too. So Fred, thanks so much again for coming on. Thanks for sharing your expertise. And hopefully we'll be able to chat again in the future. Thanks, Cornell. Really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Bye. 
All right, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share it with someone that you think may find it useful. And of course, leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is always super appreciated as well. I'd like to end with a big thanks to two of our sponsors who, apart from my investing course, literally keep the entire Build Wealth Canada podcast and website free for you. Our first sponsor is BMO ETFs. Do you know why asset allocation ETFs have become so popular? Asset allocation explains over 90% of the variation in a portfolio's quarterly returns. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to these ETFs. Today's sponsor, BMO ETFs, offers these innovative all-in-one solutions with the BMO All Equity ETF, ZEQT, BMO Growth ETF, ZGRO, BMO Balanced ETF, ZBAL, BMO Conservative ETF, ZCON, and more. BMO developed these to help provide investors with ETFs that offer broad diversification, and they're also low-cost and simple to use. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically back to your set asset allocation or mix of stocks and bonds. They offer a hands-free approach to investing that is built on disciplined weights to provide exposure to different geographies and sectors all in one solution. BMO actually offers eight asset allocation ETFs and you can learn more at BMOETFs.com. I'd also like to thank Passive, the investing tool that I use for my entire investment portfolio. You can get your free account in Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And you can see my portfolio and what ETFs I buy within Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash portfolio. Passive is literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments as it lets me immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio and then automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target asset allocation across all my household's accounts. Then if I want, in a couple of clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. My other favorite feature is to be able to see the performance of my entire household's investment portfolio across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all our accounts just to see how we're doing. They have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Questrade user like me, you can also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments as they've saved me dozens of hours when managing and optimizing my investment portfolio. Definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company. And you can get your free account by going to Build Wealth Canada ca slash free again that's build wealth ca slash free thanks for listening to the build wealth canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca 